It takes discipline to be a disciple. And while most of us claim to be disciples of Christ, most would just as soon do without the discipline. You know, we tend to view discipline as something undesirable. Yet we wouldn't want our armed forces to be undisciplined. And we recognize the need to discipline our children. So it should not surprise us to learn that it takes discipline to be a disciple. Now, the primary definition of discipline is training that develops self-control and character. And obviously, such training will at times be vigorous and unpleasant. You don't expect boot camp to be a vacation. But if you endure the hardships in basic training, you're more apt to have the discipline necessary to succeed as a soldier. And the same is true of our spiritual life. Our time on earth can be viewed as boot camp to some degree. It's a time of training that develops character and if handled properly, a time that equips us for eternal life. Now, sometimes that training is costly. We hear of soldiers being wounded and even killed in training exercises. And as we saw last week, some of those who have gone before us in the faith have had to endure mockings and scourgings and chains and imprisonment. Discipline even cost some of them their lives. So we shouldn't expect our time on earth to be all joy and bliss, even if we're Christians. In fact, Christians should expect the training they experience in life to be tougher than that of non-Christians. Christians have enlisted in the Lord's army and have declared they are willing to pay the price to have their characters molded into the image of Christ. Still, when the going gets rough, many of us want to go AWOL. But that's nothing new. They were doing that in the first century. In fact, the primary reason for the writing of the book of Hebrews was to stop defection from the faith. And the author sought to do this by pointing out the vast superiority of the Christian faith over everything else. And by warning of the eternal consequences of defecting from the faith, calling to mind the heroes of faith and explaining what it is that his readers were going through and why it was necessary they go through it. Well, we pick up our text today where he has just completed listing many of the heroes of faith as he moves to encourage and explain. And he begins by seeking to give encouragement in the midst of discipline. We're beginning again the 12th chapter of Hebrews. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him 
who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. The author begins by viewing life as a race set before us. And encourages us to run the race with endurance by reminding us of those who have run the race before us. Those heroes of faith who've gone before and now constitute a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Now, some see in this a picture of a grandstand in heaven with the saints cheering us on. And while that is an encouraging picture, it's probably not what the author had in mind. Chances are he was referring to the fact that the witness, the testimony of those who've gone before should encourage us to finish the race. They finish the race, and so can we. At least we can if we, like they, are willing to do what is necessary to win the race. In a physical race, a runner has to be willing to pay the price to get under condition. He must be willing to exercise and, if need be, to get rid of that excess baggage that tends to creep over his belt. He must also be willing to give up those things that reduce his endurance and that distract him from his running. In the race of life, the same holds true. We, too, must be willing to pay the price for victory. We must be willing to rid ourselves of those things that hold us back or distract us from our goal. Now, those things may be different for each of us. What hinders me may not hinder you. So we cannot legislate a list of things we must all give up if we are to succeed in the race of life. Instead, each has to be sensitive to the Spirit's leading as He convicts us individually of what needs to go. Whatever slows us down, what hinders us, what keeps us from pursuing Christ-likeness has to be laid aside along with the sin that so wants to dominate our lives. If we'll do that, We can run, fixing our eyes solely on the goal, on Jesus. The one upon whom our faith is based and the one who will one day bring it to completion. One who has run the race before us and who is now in the winner's circle, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Unless we think the race too hard for us, that the obstacles too great and the price to pay too high, he reminds us of the fact that Jesus endured the cross and the most violent hostilities against himself that sinful man could devise and still finished the race. He trusts that by focusing our attention on Jesus and his victory, we will not lose heart and give in to the weariness that eats away at our resolve. Besides, he adds, we haven't resisted to the point of shedding blood. We haven't had to pay the ultimate price for victory 
so surely we can press on. Enduring the discipline of life necessary to reach our goal. The saints before us made it, and the Lord himself made it, so we can make it too. Besides, the very fact that we are being disciplined tells us something very encouraging. It assures us of our sonship. Verses 5 through 8. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now, while the primary definition of discipline is training that develops self-control and character, a second definition is treatment that corrects or punishes. And this aspect of discipline is brought up by the mention of our sonship. You know, as parents, we realize that at times it's necessary to correct faulty behavior. And that that is part of our program of training for our children. Now, all discipline isn't corrected, but some of it is. So we shouldn't faint when we are reproved by God. There will be times when God will have to scourge us to correct our faulty behavior by a specific disciplinary action, and God does do that. He can cause unpleasant, even painful things to happen to us as disciplinary actions to wake us up, to get us back on track, back in the race, heading for the winner's circle. Now, that does not mean that everything unpleasant or painful that happens to us in life is a specific disciplinary action caused by God to create a faulty behavior. Much of what we experience in life is merely part of the general program of discipline intended to develop in us a Christ-like character. The program in boot camp is rough on everybody, even those who've done nothing wrong. So we should all expect tough times in life. And we need not assume every time something bad happens to us that God is punishing us. For something. In fact, none of God's program of discipline is punitive in nature. Christ took our punishment for us. However, however, there may be times when God is trying to correct something specific in our life with disciplinary action. So when an especially hard time comes, we should examine ourselves to see if there is a particular sin that needs to be dealt with or something in our life 
It needs to be discarded because it's hindering our spiritual progress. If it can be readily found, we should assume God is bringing specific disciplinary action against us. And we should accept it and let it do its work. But being disciplined shouldn't depress us. It should assure us. For God only disciplines those He loves. As our Heavenly Father, He treats us as His children. And what son is there whose father does not discipline? Now, we discipline our children because they are our children. And more than anything else in the world, we want them to develop characters that will bring them eternal victory. So we do our best to correct faults before they have eternal consequences. I didn't discipline Nikki and Matt because I hated them, but because I loved them. I did not enjoy the silent walk into the bedroom and the time of pain and crying any more than they did. But I disciplined them because I'm their father. And I love them. The same is true of our Heavenly Father. If we weren't His children, He wouldn't discipline us. So times of discipline bring with them the blessed assurance that we belong to our Heavenly Father. At least, they do when we understand the purpose of discipline. Verses 9-11. through 11. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You know, we all recognize that disciplinary action is unpleasant. And no child will admit that he wants to be disciplined. But even a child will respect his or her parents more if he's properly disciplined. Now, he may think his parents are unfair, and that since Johnny gets to do something, he should be allowed to do so too. He may even envy a friend who gets to do whatever he wants to do. But even a two- or three-year-old can sense that properly administered discipline is for his own good. Shouldn't we then be able to recognize that our spiritual father disciplines us for our own good as well. And surely he does a better job than earthly fathers. You know, earthly fathers have a narrow window of time during which to discipline their children. They can only rightfully exercise discipline over their children while they are under their authority at home. God disciplines us throughout life. And even though parents do what they think is best, 
their discipline isn't perfect. Sometimes their anger gets into the picture. And they do have a tendency to be a bit inconsistent in their discipline. Our Heavenly Father, on the other hand, knows what is best at all times. And He is able to perfectly tailor an individual program for us that will enable us to share His holiness. Now, some might object to the notion that God plans out our programs of discipline, arguing that much of what happens to us in life just happens. But we must never forget that God is in control of everything, and nothing just happens. Now, that's not to say, that is not to say, there is a reason for everything that happens. That God causes everything that happens to us. But nothing can happen that He does not allow. And He will not allow anything to happen to us that He cannot fit into a pattern for good in our lives. We have His Word on that in Romans 8, 28. So we need to trust that He's in control and love Him enough to commit ourselves to Him and His purposes in our life, confident that He will use everything that happens to us to shape us into the image of His Son. Now, that doesn't mean we have to enjoy everything that happens to us. It's crazy to assume you should paint a smile on your face and sing hallelujah when hardships come. Or tragedy strikes. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Even discipline from the Lord. But we should recognize its ultimate value. We should realize that to those who have been trained by it, discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That when we surrender to Christ's Lordship, and allow Him to shape our character into His image, we are made righteous in God's eyes, and that gives us confident peace before Him. So how do we respond to discipline? Verses 12 through 17. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. When faced 
with the trials of life that are intended to discipline us to develop character in our lives, how are we to respond? By falling apart? By giving up? Absolutely not. We are to strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. We acknowledge our weaknesses. And then we draw upon the strength and confidence that comes from God's Holy Spirit that indwells us. A confidence that will enable us to look past our circumstances. Keep our eyes on Jesus and stay on the straight and narrow path. And if we'll stay on course, we will find healing. Rather than cripple us, the disciplines of life and the specific disciplinary actions of God will make us stronger. So we respond to discipline by renewing our resolve to be all God wants us to be. Living sanctified lives. Lives that are put to proper use. Acknowledging that we are children of God, that we belong to Him. And then having found peace with God, we are able to pursue peace with all men. We understand that our fight is not against flesh and blood, but spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. That by God's grace, we have been and are even now being fashioned into the image of Christ. Even by things, events, circumstances, and people that seem to be fighting against us. Knowing that keeps us from allowing a root of bitterness to spring up in our lives. Bitterness that comes from doubting God's love and provision. Bitterness that comes from not understanding God's purposes in allowing bad things to happen to us. There's no room for bitterness in a heart that knows it's loved and that trusts God knows what He's doing even when we don't fully understand how something can be beneficial to our spiritual development. There are some things we just will not understand. But God demonstrated His love for us on a cross. And He continues to demonstrate it through the discipline of a loving Heavenly Father. And if we will remember that, we will not lose faith and defile ourselves. We'll not be like Esau, who for relief from trauma of the moment gave up on the promises of God and was never able to regain what he had lost. If you want the eternal reward God has offered through His Son, 
You're going to have to endure a time of discipline to become like His Son. You're going to have to give yourself to Him and trust He will do whatever is necessary to prepare you for an eternity in His presence. He doesn't guarantee a life of bliss now. In fact, He tells us to expect the disciplines of life to be sorrowful. But He promises us that if we will be trained by it, the discipline will yield in our lives the peaceful fruit of righteousness eternally. So are you willing to be disciplined today for a glorious future tomorrow? That's the question. And if you are, then surrender to his discipline and willingly allow him, willingly allow him to do whatever is necessary to make you into the image of His Son. Isn't that our goal? Isn't that our goal? To be made into the image of His Son. That's not easy. It's going to be hard. But it's the greatest life possible. Because it's the life that enables us to be a part of what God is doing through all eternity. It allows us to know the joy of peace that comes from being in a relationship with our Creator and one who benefits from His promises. Sometimes what Scripture teaches us is difficult. And the world doesn't like to hear difficult messages. You know, I doubt that you'll hear this passage proclaimed in large arenas of celebration today. We tend to only want to celebrate the good things. By God's grace, we celebrate even the bad things. I pray you can do that. But not all things are bad. When we come together as a body of Christ, we have great times of celebration. And we're going to have one this morning. Let's stand and sing.